This episode is brought to you by Donner. Check out the show notes to find a good deal at Donner. Like the sound of this? This is the Donner Island Delay, and the really cool Donner LP that I've shown off on, like, Instagram. Check it out. Uh, They've got some really good summer deals, and check out their snap deals as well. Use the link in the show notes to help support the show. Get yourself some cool musical instruments, maybe some patch chords. Cool. This episode is brought to you by California Tea House. California Tea House is a family-owned tea store where you can find some of the world's best loose-leaf tea and organic herbal tea blends. Like a fine wine, there is no comparison between fine loose-leaf and common broken-leaf tea bags. So, yeah, no, check them out. Check them out. They have quite a bit of pretty awesome tea collections. I'm a huge fan of their white teas. Uh, They have a tea club that you can join, but, you know, they've got green tea, black tea, white tea, oolong, that uh, robios and herbal tea. They've also got teaware. So check out California Tea House in the show notes. You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Greetings, listeners. It is I, T.B. Spitzer and Farmer Dave, here once again to talk to you about the Cthulhu Mythos, its books, its monsters, its unfortunate human casualties, its timeline in general, and even its tangential bits, like the dreamlands or things of a weird nature that are Lovecraftian leaning. Once more we head into those dark woods, further feeling those malevolent forces upon us. Once again we walk down the lightless stone staircase in the middle of nowhere. You're listening to KZON. Great Disasters and Horrors in the World's History by Alan H. Goodby. Chapter 23. Diseased nature oftentimes breaks forth in strange eruptions, and the teeming earth is with a kind of colic, pinched and vexed, by the imprisoning of unruly wind within her womb, which, for enlargement striving, shakes the old beldam earth, and topples down steeples and moss-grown towers. Such is a theory of earthquakes, as laid down by Wild Will Shakespeare. Whether it be an expression of the popular belief of the day, or personal opinion, is not easy to determine. If the latter, he had, as we shall see by and by, many predecessors in the same belief. His metaphor, though more elegantly expressed, cannot compare with the Indians for terseness and force. Ground heap sick, heap belly ache, no good. We have already seen that the forces producing earthquakes and volcanic action are conceded to be practically identical. The latter seldom occurs without the former but the former are frequent in districts far removed from any known vent of subterranean heat. So the expression of Shakespeare is not so far wrong as might be, so far as our present knowledge goes. In the Hindu cosmogony, successive ages of the world are separated by periods of chaos, and no wilder image of unrained destruction has fancy ever dreamed. The earth is to be eternal. There is one eternal, invisible spirit, Brahm, from whom springs Brahma, who creates a race of gods. These frame the earth into orderly condition, and rule it for 400,000 years. At the end of that time, the land and sea and sky meet in gigantic ruin, 
The gods are no more, save only Vishnu, the preserver. The sea covers all things, and eternal night is accompanied by eternal tempest. Eternal is not strictly correct, however. This reign of destruction lasts 400,000 years, during which time Vishnu sleeps on the coils of the great seven-headed serpent of eternity, which floats under the gloomy sea. The long night over, Vishnu wakes and remodels the earth, and peace and light resume their sway. Seven such cycles pass, all things are annihilated, and Brahm sets about a new creation which goes the same round. The Eastern wise men, fond of allegory and parable, doubtless intended by this to express the persistence and order in the universe, even in periods of the most inexplicable disaster, and to picture for the ignorant the absolute eternity of God. The thing was too good to let drop, and others added to it by asserting the earth was upborne by an elephant who stood on the back of a tortoise. The tortoise rested on a fish, the fish on water, the water on air, the air on light, the light on darkness, the darkness on the Lord only knows what. When these animals were somewhat wearied, they changed their position and the earth trembled. Greece had a somewhat better myth of the giant Atlas who bore the world on his shoulders, but the old fellow's gait was not the steadiest. Rome, not much given to manufacturing her myth de novo, imported the Grecian fable. We have today appropriated the old fellow's title for a geography supposed to contain the whole earth. The figure is lost on most. But the alleged drunkenness of Atlas did not consort precisely with the popular ideas of the proper conduct of a steady old porter in a responsible position, and the mythmakers dragged in a new scapegoat in the person of the titan Typhon, or Enceladus, supposed to be entombed in Mount Etna, as we have elsewhere noticed. Inhabitants of parts of farther India and of some Malayan islands believe that far down in the bowels of the earth an immense tiger, Pelu, lies asleep. The sole object of his existence is to destroy the earth, but he may not do this till the human race is extinct. Then he will rise to his feet, the earth will burst into fragments and fly into the distant realms of space. It must of necessity follow that our feline friend's existence is a somewhat monotonous one, and to avoid any why in his cramped quarters, he passes much time in sleep, waking occasionally, and, wishing like the German Barbarossa, to know if his time has come, he cautiously raises a few hairs on his back. The earth trembles, and the natives, rushing from their tottering houses, throw themselves upon the ground, shouting loudly, Pelu, Pelu, to assure his tigership that they are certainly alive. Satisfied on this point, the worshipful beast composes himself for another nap. Thor, the war god of the Norsemen, wielded a mighty hammer, Mjolnir. In the saga of King Olaf, we found Thor shouting, The blows of my hammer ring in the earthquake. Another myth attributes the earthquake to the restlessness of the serpent Midgard, who encircles the universe, his tail in his mouth. Also, the wolf Fenrir, who was to take part in the final contest that produces Ragnarok, is supposed to have the occasional differences of opinion before the time with certain of the fire giants. The earth is then liable to be shaken. Natives of the Tonga group in the South Pacific believe that their hero god, Maui, upheld the world on his breast.
when he became restless and shook the earth, they would rush out and beat the ground with sticks to make him lie still. From traditions concerning Muhammad, we learn that the circular earth lies in the midst of a vast sea and is encircled by an immense whale, upon whose back 700,000 gigantic bulls walk up and down. Said whale swims about the earth very cautiously, but occasionally jostles it slightly. On the night when Muhammad was born, this noble animal was so agitated with joy that he had not the Lord restrained him, he would assuredly have overturned the earth. The Sandwich Islanders believed that the goddess Pele, who dwelt in the great volcano of Kilauea, was displeased with the conduct of man. She proceeded to admonish him of her power by shaking him out of bed in the night and tumbling his house about his ears. If especially angry, she set her volcanic home to fuming and firing. So-called scientific theories on various topics have in time past been little more respectable and need not be given any detailed attention. The pious gentry who deemed Roger Bacon a wizard and Columbus and Galileo heretics would have listened with horror to any effort to explain the phenomena of earthquakes as anything else than a direct manifestation of the wrath of God. Researchers in many branch of natural science met with decided discouragement in Christendom during the Dark and Middle Ages, and the Goddess of Wisdom found a decidedly more congenial atmosphere at Morse and Saracen courts. Hence the modern science of seismology, as the investigation of earthquakes are called, is comparatively in its infancy. Yet the subject of seismic phenomena has been of interest to the thoughtful from a very early period, earthquakes being of far greater frequency than most persons suppose. Some of the earliest philosophers ventured opinions on the topic, for the records of earthquakes more distinctly than those of volcanoes, go back to the earliest times. We find Aristotle, in his treatise on natural events, rejecting the explanations of three other philosophers as untenable and propounding a theory on his own. Anaximenes of Miletus suggested the drying and moistening of the earth occasioned irregular contraction and expansion, and from the crackling and readjusting, shocks resulted. Democritus of Abdera shook his earth by means of vast subterranean bodies of water which some force compelled to move from one cavity to another. Doubtless, the peculiar wave-like motion of the earth and many earthquakes suggested his theory. Anaxagoras of Clausomenae believed that ether, by which the old Greeks seemed to mean air, was confined in underground cavities, and in its efforts to escape upward produced the vibration of the earth. Aristotle substitutes for the disturbing agent wind, which has flowed into fissures and caverns and is endeavoring to flow out again. Virgil and Pliny stand by the old Greek, and it is probable that Shakespeare acquired this idea from one of the three. And these, with Anaxagoras, are but little out of the way, for as seen in the discussion of volcanic action, the explosive or disturbing agent is generally steam, though other gases are present in large quantities. We have already noticed that earthquakes and volcanoes are produced by the same causes, but as the myths of many nations do not connect the two, it is evident that such people do not recognize their essential identity. But after knowing they are but variations in results, we cannot so readily explain the reason of the variations. Certain facts are well established, and from these common premises widely different conclusions have been deduced. 
we know that today in active volcanic regions, an earthquake almost invariably precedes an eruption, and a violent one has never, within the historic period, followed an eruption. So the most reasonable inference is that the earthquake merely betokens the presence of a vast quantity of imprisoned vapor, which has not found an outlet, and that so soon as a volcanic vent is found, the pressure is relieved and the earthquake subsides. But this leaves us just where the theorists of volcanic agency have stopped. The question of the sudden formation of volumes of gases in sufficient quantities to produce such terrible effects is to be solved. Mr. Mallet, who is one of the best authorities on the subject, considers that submarine eruptions must account for them. A volcanic upheaval of the sea bottom would produce crevices by which the sea is brought directly in contact with subterranean fires. An explosion is a result, like those that have occasionally occurred at foundries from dumping masses of fiery slag into a snowbank. So, what began with a gradual upheaval ends with a sudden concussion, the vibration of which passes along the sea bottom to the mainland. Everyone who has lived in the city is familiar with the fact that the vibration produced by a carriage may be felt at the top of a very tall building. But the idea that the explosion always occurs at the sea bottom leaves no way to account for the fact that a volcanic eruption acts as a safety valve. Mr. Mallet's conclusions are largely based on personal observations of earthquakes in England, where no active volcano exists. That earthquakes are more violent and volcanoes more numerous on islands or near the sea coast is well known. It is also well established that shocks frequently occur at sea, which are not perceptible on the land. The shock is similar to that produced by striking on a reef. Often have sailors been mystified on receiving such shocks and hastily heaving the lead to find the ocean unfathomable. Again, shocks which are most violent on land are not perceptible at sea, unless a great sea wave be produced. But such a wave in the open sea, as often experienced, produces no shock but passes under a vessel like a heavy swell. And a shock at sea is sometimes severe enough to snap a spar, or wrench loose bolts like the blow of a reef, yet no trace is perceptible on shore. Lastly, earthquakes often happen in inland regions and affect but a small area. Clearly it will not do to attribute effects so different to explosions at the sea bottom. Those who attribute all earthquakes to subterranean heat and gases, whether local or general, find it easy to account for the occurrence of violent earthquakes in regions remote from active volcanoes. In the case of the gradual decline of volcanic action, such as we know from the great numbers of extinct volcanoes, old trap dikes, and ancient lava beds, to be continually taking place in one region or another, the old vents or safety valves would cool and close. The pent-up power would in consequence gradually accumulate, so finding no outlet, it would burst the crust over a wide area and so relieve the pressure. This finds further confirmation in the fact that the noted non-volcanic regions, which are seriously shaken, are all coincident with or adjacent to regions of extinct fires, while in such regions as are very seldom shaken, such as Germany, portions of North America, Brazil, the eastern slope of the Andes, the traces of such agency are less common or of older date. Noted regions of volcanic action have comparatively recent extinction are Asia Minor, Turkey, Spain, southern France, and Greece. These, 
built it together by the active regions of Western Asia, the peninsula of Arabia, the Mediterranean, and Azores and Canaries, former region which has suffered from earthquakes as much as, if not more than, any other tract upon the globe. Those who have been puzzled by the appearance of earthquakes some distance from any actively volcanic region have endeavored to divide earthquakes into two classes, which they have called volcanic and plutonic. This second class they have considered as originating, like the other, in the depths of the earth, but have endeavored to account for them by supposing them to have occasioned by the falling in of great caverns at a considerable depth. This theory has found a fair objection in the fact that in such cases an earthquake should always be a sinking of the ground, while the wrecking power and peculiarities of some earthquakes indicate a decided upward concussion as the first of shocks. And at the seashore, where any change in level is at once detected, upheaval is quite as common as subsidence. Much speculation has been spent upon the fact of an earthquake being very severe in two or three different localities, but being imperceptible or very mild in intervening places. In South America, it has become so common a peculiarity that the natives speak of such localities as bridging the earthquakes. Not improbably, the reason is the same that produces calm when two waves interfere, crest to trough, the motions destroy each other. It may also be that the character of the underlying rocks has much to do with such cases. Experiments with explosions in mines show that the vibrations of the soil travel over 300 yards per second through sand beds, or about as rapidly as in air, over 500 yards in granite, while through iron they travel over 3,850 yards per second. So a vibration extremely destructive to a region underlaid by massive rocks might be comparatively harmless to a town on a sandbag or a mud bank. Observations on earthquakes themselves have shown great variation in the rate of speed. The earthquake of Germany of 1846 moved 492 yards per second, while the earthquake of Vege in 1855 traveled 960 yards a second towards Strasbourg, but only half that speed towards Turin. So, also, the Lisbon earthquake traveled three times as rapidly around the coast as down the Rhine Valley. So it must be that certain regions owe their comparative immunity from earthquakes to the nature of the ground beneath. One or two ingenious savants have suggested that the earth is a vast thermoelectric pile, and that disturbances in the electrical equilibrium of the earth are the cause of earthquakes and volcanic eruptions. But as already seen, the electrical phenomena of volcanic eruptions are fairly considered an effect, and not a cause, of the eruptions, as the hydroelectric machine illustrates. In the theory of these men, the molten veins of the interior represent conductors which are too small or imperfect to allow the electricity to pass freely, and are used in consequence. One of the men, Stephens, alleges that such phenomena can only occur where large veins of coal exist, because large masses of carbon would be necessary to keep up a strong electric tension in the interior. Herr Steffens must account for the fact that the great coal regions of the world have been peculiarly favored in their comparative immunity from shocks. Still others have advocated for the idea that atmospheric whirlwinds and cyclones produce earthquakes. While not a few shocks have been accompanied by violent storms, the exception seems to be the rule. 
and in the case of storms, we have seen that the outpour of heat and vapor in volcanic eruption would necessarily produce one. As concerns the winds that have accompanied earthquakes, they have as often come after the shock as before. But these bring up certain phenomena that must be noticed. It is not easy to say how great is the connection between electrical and atmospheric disturbances and the shiverings of the earth, but that there is some peculiar bond between them has been thought indisputable. It is only in the present century that scientists have carefully conned this matter and generally rejected the belief, but the opinion is very ancient and has a strong hold upon the people. It is generally adhered to by South Americans, Italians, West Indians, Japanese, and the inhabitants of Central Asia. Kamstakans, Kuril Islanders, and Japanese assert shocks are the most frequent at the equinoxes. In Equatorial America, the natives say an earthquake is preceded by drought and is a precursor of rain. In the Delphini Alps, the people regard earthquakes as a result of avalanches and the latter are readily started by the slightest atmospheric disturbances. In Central America, the equinoctial idea prevails. These things set the wise men to investigating. Much to their surprise, they began to discover that the idea of connection between the seasons and shocks seemed well-grounded. In 1834, Professor Marion announced that one of 118 earthquakes at Basle, the majority had occurred in the winter. Vulture made a list of 1,230 shocks in the Alps. 774 occurred in autumn and winter. December showed that 168, July 40. Of 98 quite severe shocks, but one had occurred in the summer. Of 539 earthquakes in the Rhine Basin, 103 occurred in the spring, 101 in the summer, 165 in the autumn, 170 in the winter. Observations in the Antilles show a slight predominance of autumn and winter. Another peculiar fact is that most shocks seem to occur at night. Out of 472 earthquakes in 1855-56, whose time was exactly noted, but 172 happened in the day. Of those at night, three-fifths were during the latter half, 44 being between 1 and 2 o'clock. Squire has told us that during several years' residence in Central America, nearly all shocks occurred at night. Also, that he experienced none save at the change of seasons. Hence, one is almost compelled to conclude that, while the primal cause of earthquakes must exist in the depths of the earth, yet external and climatic influences are strong modifiers. Some other peculiarities are adduced to show the connection between atmospheric disturbances and earthquakes. In Central and Tropical America, the temperature is said to fall after any shock. After the earthquake in Lechland, Sweden, in 1856, the temperature fell 86 degrees. The same shock was violent as far as Smyrna in Asia Minor, where the thermometer fell at once 29 degrees, the night being the coldest of the winter. Many similar cases are mentioned. But in view of the fact that 100 times as many sudden and marked changes of temperature occur every year in various localities without the intervention of an earthquake, it seems difficult to regard the above instances as more than mere coincidences. The greatest fall in temperature the writer ever experienced occurred within three hours of a transit of Venus, but one swallow, nor a flock of them, cannot make a summer. Barometric observations have been dragged into the combat. The Great Lisbon Earthquake and the Convulsion in Calabria 
were preceded by low barometer. Similar observations have been made in this century. The constantly recurring shocks of 1855 to 56 were in each case preceded by a fall of barometers. But Humboldt in South America and Ehrman in Central America were unable to find such order, though the shocks were so invariably followed by such changes that unusual earthquakes were believed by the natives, as Oz is also believed in India, to advance the rainy season. The resultant electric phenomena might produce this expedition. But in this field at all present is mere guesswork. The exceptions to any association of earthquake and storm are so far the rule, except in case of a volcanic eruption also occurring. In the latter case, a storm invariably follows, so far as present observations go. But then the storm is not coextensive with the earthquake, but is usually confined to the neighborhood of the volcano. It should be noticed that certain scientists have endeavored to prove these convulsions are due to planetary influence. It does not appear that they have been able to find the least trace of any connection between the Earth's convulsions and the planets. But some affirm the existence of an earthquake cycle coincident with the sorrows of the moon. Effort is also made to connect earthquakes and volcanoes with the gigantic convulsions of the sun, known as sunspots. It is argued that by certain advocates of the molten interior that the attraction of the sun and moon produces an interior tidal wave, like that of the sea, and any irregularities in this produce the phenomena of earthquakes and volcanic eruptions. Objections to the molten interior have already been noted, and in regard to other suggestions, so long as the great convulsions are peculiarly prevalent in certain regions, so long it will be necessary to seek their chief cause or most powerful modifiers in entirely local influences. In conclusion, it does not yet seem clear that we can rely absolutely upon a single cause as productive of all the convulsions of the Earth's crust. Internal local heat, pent-up gases, suffice for volcanic phenomena. But earthquakes present so many peculiar variations that it seems almost imperative to many men to admit, at least, the modifying influence of other agencies. But so long as these agencies appear to be quite as frequently the modified as a modifier, no laws concerning them can be announced. Hence, internal conditions are the only clearly identified factors so far. There is quite as much difference of opinion as to how far beneath the surface the shocks originate. Robert Mallet's investigations have led him to believe the depth cannot be over 30 miles, and that 7 or 8 miles is the limit for most, and his views are those of most scientists. But a few others conclude that we cannot find molten matter and gases to produce a concussion at a less depth than 78 miles. But, as their conclusions are based largely upon the idea that the melting point of minerals is raised uniformly with increasing pressure, their conclusions must be rejected as unreliable. The character of the motion is well known. Each point of the surface begins to move with the vibration first upwards, then away from the center of the shock, then downwards and backwards. Thus, each point describes a small ellipse, which is repeated with each wave of vibration. If the longer axis of the ellipse can be vertical, the main force of the concussion is directed upwards. If the shorter one be upright, the shock is an undulatory one. In alternation of the two forms, the most destructive combination. The difference is readily perceived in the effects produced. A sudden upward shock may wreck the roofs of floors or buildings, while an undulatory one brings down the walls. Houses erected on sand, immediately overlaying compact rock, usually suffer most during earthquakes. 
The effect is that of the vibration of a sheet of glass covered with sand. But if a second sheet of glass be placed on that, the vibration is hardly communicated to it at all. So, while sand is a bad foundation, a sand bed beneath the surface seems to deaden the shock. It is not difficult to understand that lofty buildings, and those of stone or brick, must be vastly more dangerous than those of wood and low and broad. Throughout many portions of Central and South America, the people endeavored to compromise by building houses of stone, but low and massive, with very light roofs. These are far less safe than light structures of wood. Also, it is clear that cupolas and towers must be peculiarly liable to injury. For this reason, churches have often suffered more from shocks than other buildings, and the throngs of pretenants who flock to them in the hopes of propitiating an offended providence are often the first victims of an earthquake. It is to earthquakes, rather than to barbarians, from the 5th to 9th century that Rome owed the loss of so many superb palaces and temples. One might imagine that in these great disasters, the architect is the ally of the subterranean scourge. The Indian's hut and the Arab's tent may be overturned without any great loss or injury to their owners, but the marble of the patrician crushes them as it falls, and the inhabitants of a great city meet their death under the ruins of the sumptuous buildings. The Peruvians of old were not far wrong in making merry at the folly of their Spanish conquerors, who, in erecting great buildings upon a soil so constantly agitated, were preparing, at great expense, their own tombs. It will be shown, by and by, how the motions of earthquakes are becoming so carefully noted that their path can be pointed out beforehand. Ere many years are passed, the prediction of earthquakes may become as important a feature of the signal service department as the foretelling of storms. End of chapter 23, Earthquakes. Thank you once again for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. You can help show your support by going to the show notes and following any of the links that'll tell you how to support the show, how to support our guests, and thank you to all of our guests who you can find in the show notes. Rate, review, subscribe, and remember, patrons get priority access to asking us questions, suggesting topics, even, I don't know, uh, submitting stuff. Actually, you don't have to be a patron to submit anything. That's how Dave got on the show, and that's how you can get on the show, too. It's the People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends. Thank you for listening. Back to the show. Tell your ma, tell your pa, I'll ship you down to South Agua. You can buy that shirt now. It's in the shop. Hey everyone, it's me, DB. New sponsor on the show, Clary. Clary offers a great price and better quality goods and services for music lovers. Are you looking for good prices, free shipping, 100% quality guarantee? Clary's got you covered. Guitars, bass guitars, mandolins, They've got saxophones, trumpets, drums. They've got guitar cases, amplifiers, all the stuff that you need without having to break the bank. Inexpensive doesn't have to mean cheap. Check out the show notes to find more about Glary. 20-watt amplifiers for under $50. Hard cases for your electric guitar for under $80. Guitars themselves for under $90. Come on, folks, check out the show notes. Get a glary.
spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Here are your hosts, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classic and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher. Or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Bryce, and Joel Hodgson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the HP Lovecraft Film Festival, Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and the Head of Rondo Hatton, only on Monster Kid Radio. Great Disasters and Horrors in the World's History by Alan H. Godby. Chapter 24 European Earthquakes The thunder roared his signal to the sea, while shook the frightened earth through all her coasts, and mountains bowed their trembling heads in awe, and yawning gulfs leaped up amid the plains, and fountains of the mighty deep were rent. The waves, long prisoned in their rocky bounds, roared in a strange new freedom rushing forth, and sprang on forest, plain, and mount, and hill, and vale, exulting in destruction, while the frightened hordes of men with birds and beasts of every sort fought each with each for refuge from the flood, yet none escaped. Records and myths of great earthquakes go back almost to prehistoric times. The Greeks tell of an immense flood, perhaps a sea wave, which overwhelmed Attica immediately after an earthquake in the 19th century before Christ. It is known as the Deluge of Ogyges, from the name of the reigning king. Some three centuries later is the story of a great earthquake and flood in Thessaly, from which Deucalion and Pyrrha escaped. There is a still vaguer legend of an immense earthquake about 2400 BC that shook all southern Europe and Asia Minor opening an outlet for the Black Sea, which had before been entirely inland. In the convulsion of the seas, we are told almost all the people of Greece and Asia Minor perished. Chinese traditions and monuments tell of an immense earthquake at the same period, which suddenly raised the bottom of the Great Northern Sea, pouring its waters out upon all North China and drowning the people. Where the Great Sea once was is now the Great Mongolian Desert. Likewise, the Egyptian priests told Plato of a great island, Atlantis, lying off the coast of North Africa, stretching an unknown distance to the west, the home of a mighty nation that ruled all the western world, to the shores of the Mediterranean and threatened the liberty of the European world. It is said that they made war on the combined forces of Greece and Egypt, and in the crisis of the struggle, a fearful earthquake swallowed up the Grecian soldiery in a single night, and sunk Atlantis in the ocean since called from its name, Atlantic. Doubtless, all these traditions relate to the same terrible catastrophe described in Genesis. The Chinese even tell us in what way the fountains of the great deep were broken up, 
It would seem that a great sea once extended northeastward from the present basin of the Caspian over the deserts of Central Asia, and that an awful upheaval of this basin was the chief factor in the flood. Isthmuses were torn asunder, vast oceans hurled their gigantic waves over the continents and over islands engulfed forever. The extraordinary evaporation from the unusual expanse of water, the sudden chilling of the atmosphere, produced torrents of rain. The same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened. Whatever be the truth of the traditions, it is certain they preserve the memory of a catastrophe unparalleled in recent days. Of a later date, there is a story that the Ciminian and Alban lakes near Rome were created by a terrible earthquake, but the date of this event is not very definite. The Japanese tell us that the great volcano, Fujiyama, was thrown up in a single night, and at the same time the lake in Umi was created nearby, on the site of a number of flourishing villages. Occasionally an earthquake has brought about a historic crisis. In the year 464 BC, in the fourth year of the reign of Archidamus, there happened the most dreadful earthquake in Sparta that had ever been known. In several places the country was entirely swallowed up, Tigetus and other mountains were shaken to their foundations, many of their summits being torn away came tumbling down, and the whole city was laid in ruins, five houses only excepted. To heighten the calamity, the Helots, who were slaves to the Lacedaemonians, looking upon this as a favorable opportunity to recover their liberty, pervaded every part of the city to murder such as had escaped the earthquake, but finding them under arms and drawn up in order of battle by the prudent foresight of Archidamus, who had assembled them around him, they retired into the neighboring cities, and commenced that day open war, having entered into an alliance with several of the neighboring nations, and being strengthened by the Messenians, who at that time were engaged in war with the Spartans. But for the timely aid of others, Sparta might have been overthrown. The most striking feature is the astonishing coolness and presence of mind of the Spartans in the face of such a dire calamity. This is, perhaps, the earliest earthquake of which careful historic mention is made, but from that time the record thickens rapidly. In the year 373 BC, a great shock did fearful damage throughout all Greece, destroying thousands of lives and damaging millions of dollars worth of property in a single night. The inhabitants of the Peloponnesus, roused by the convulsion, waited in fear for the morning. Dawn showed that the two beautiful cities of Bura and Hellas were no more. The sea rolled above. Long after, on calm, clear days, Hellas, once an inland town, could be seen at the bottom of the Corinthian Gulf. Silent and beautiful in its ruin, marble temples and shattered homes presenting a literal city of the dead. The year BC 217 found Rome and Carthage locked in deadly combat. While Hannibal and Flaminius fought by Thrasymene, Earth felt the throes of war and shook Italian cities down, while lakes and streams were tumbled from their beds. North Africa suffered perhaps the greatest shaking record in her history. One hundred towns were lost, and tens of thousands of people perished. In AD 17, thirteen cities of Asia Minor were thrown to the ground. The Emperor Tiberius rebuilt them at his own expense. The grateful people presented him with a magnificent pedestal, which he had placed in the forum at Pozzuoli. A.D. 27, Egypt was shaken, and the great statue of Memnon overthrown. In A.D. 63 came a great earthquake in central Italy. The earthquake in A.D. 33, at the time of the crucifixion, was felt throughout Asia Minor, Greece, Sicily, and southern Italy. In the Syria, 
Corpses were tumbled from their rock-hewn tombs. The town of Nicaea in Bithynia was totally destroyed. How many perished in this widespread shock is not known. Tradition has it that a fissure in a great rock, which overhangs the shore at Gaeta, was made by this earthquake. Till quite recently, passing vessels were wont to salute the rock in commemoration of the great event. No city has suffered from these terrible throes of Mother Earth as much as Antioch. In the year 115, the Emperor Trajan, extending his territories to the wilder regions of the Caucasus, was in the city with his army. There came heavy thunders, great winds, fearful subterranean rumblings. The earth shook. Down tottered temples, towns, palaces, colonnades, statues, homes, and huts. An irretrievable ruin. The emperor sprang from a window and ran for his life, like a peasant, through the streets resounding with the groans and cries of the unfortunates buried in the ruins. Mountains were rent asunder. Rivers turned from their courses. New streams were created. Old valleys disappeared. Eighty thousand people are believed to have perished at Antioch alone. In AD 365, a fearful earthquake was felt throughout the entire Mediterranean region. The sea rolled back, leaving fishes and vessels high and dry. Then, suddenly returning, it carried large boats two miles inland. Fifty thousand people were lost at Alexandria. Shortly before, a number of towns in Palestine had been destroyed. This second great disaster shook all Asia Minor. In every town, men began to talk with bated breath of the fearful wrath the Lord manifested because of those who had lent a willing ear to heretical doctrines. This was why only the priests and holy men of the church could appease the divine wrath, and if the town of Epidaurus had escaped the ruin which befell all the other towns along the coast, it was because the inhabitants had taken the statue of St. Hilary to the seashore. The saint made the sign of the cross, and the mountain of water, bending low before him, forthwith receded. Whence, it seems the Lord was supposed to have greater regard for crooked saintly fingers than for heretical doctrines. Numerous were the direful prodigies said to have accompanied this fearful shock. The next century brought calamities once more upon Asia Minor. A series of tremendous shocks were felt in 458, wrecking many of the finest cities. The renowned Antioch, rebuilt in its pristine splendor, was once more humbled in the dust. 80,000 people perished within its walls, many thousands more in the adjacent regions. Probably 125,000 in all were slain in this earthquake. Years passed by, bringing from time to time minor shocks which destroyed hundreds in different locations, but which passed with but little notice amid so many greater disasters and wars and rumors of wars. Antioch had been gradually rebuilt and was more splendid than ever before. The first quarter of the 6th century was past. The time of the great festival of the Ascension was at hand, A.D. 526. From all the country round came people flocking to the celebration to witness the pageantry and procession. Without a moment's warning, a great earthquake came, as fearful as the shock 411 years before. The destruction was vastly greater. The tottering walls crushed thousands in the crowded streets. Every avenue and alley became a death trap. There is not, in all the pages of history, record of an earthquake of greater destructiveness. Gibbon estimates the number of victims at 250,000. Nor was Antioch the only sufferer. The number of victims at other points in Asia Minor might be 50,000 more. 
The whole sixth century is noted for the unusual number of appalling disasters of this sort, which occurred at different places in the then known world. Probably a million people perished during this period in earthquakes alone. Such unwanted havoc may well cause us to wonder what manner of convulsions were occurring in the great volcanic regions of the Pacific and the then unknown Western world. If the same general rule prevailed then that has been noticeable in more recent periods, if great convulsions were then as now, comparatively synchronous, it would be difficult to form any adequate idea of the magnitude of the disturbances. In 742, there was a tremendous earthquake in Egypt and Arabia, which overturned scores of cities and villages, rent mountains asunder, buried people in the wrecks of their dwellings, tossed the sea to and fro, swallowed up towns, wiped out thriving seaports, and numbered its dead by the many tens of thousands. Four years later, Jerusalem and all Syria experienced a dreadful shock, which made terrible havoc. In 823, Central Europe was shaken, and Aix-la-Chapelle nearly destroyed. In 860, Persia and Syria were again shaken, and in 867, Antioch, after its three centuries of comparative rest, was again ravaged by the destroyer. This shock extended to Mecca, which was fearfully rent. Part of a mountain in Syria was hurled into the sea. The century closed with a fearful convulsion in far distant India wherein no less than 180,000 people were killed. Western Syria suffered again in 1169 and 1202. All the cities of the Mediterranean coast were shaken to pieces, with the usual terrible loss of life. The valleys of the Lebanon district were upheaved and altered throughout their whole extent. Shock after shock came in the succeeding decades. One of these destroyed 40,000 persons at Baghdad alone. In 1759, the long list of catastrophes in Asia Minor was increased by one of the most terrible on record. At the first shock, the proud Antioch was once more totally destroyed. Within the next 45 days, Baalbek, Sidon, Acre, Fusa, Nazareth, Safit, Tripoli, and scores of lesser towns and villages were almost blotted out. The horrors of that period are too awful for description. Even more fearful, if possible, was the earthquake of 1822, which once more made Antioch a shapeless mass of ruins. Aleppo, Jolib, Riha, Gisser, Chugra, Dieskirk, and Armenas shared a like fate. In the whole Pashalik of Aleppo, not a house or hut was left standing. Several severe earthquakes have followed during the century. In one, we are told, the force of the shocks was so peculiar and powerful that in some places stone walls were converted to heaps of dust or lime. This record, which is but a partial one, is enough to explain the utterly ruined condition of Baalbek, Palmyra, and many other relics of ancient grandeur. They have contended with a force more terrible than ever was shot or shell of the cannoneer. Thousands are familiar with the views of such massive columns and walls of the Temple of Jupiter as are still standing, 84 feet high from base to capital. The marvel is that after such a succession of fearful quakings, there is the slightest semblance of their former condition remaining. Terrible as these calamities are, not a great deal beyond the bare fact is known of many of them. To learn more exactly the dreadful capabilities of this stupendous agent, it is necessary to examine European and South American earthquakes that have come directly under the observation of scientific men. From these we may learn more particularly of the details of various fearful shocks. In all Italy, so famed for its warmth and beauty, there is not a more lovely district than Calabria, 
which lies in the southern portion of the peninsula. Yet no part of Italy has suffered such great calamities. An earthquake in 1693 shook the whole of Calabria and Sicily, totally destroying 60 towns and villages, and not fewer than 100,000 people. 18,000 perished at Catania alone. 48 years later, a violent earthquake shattered 190 towns in Calabria, and completely swallowed up Euphemia, leaving only a stinking lake. But these were before the day of minute scientific observation. In 1783, a series of shocks unequaled in recent years in violence began in Calabria and continued through four years. The scene was visited and carefully examined by several able men, and from their accounts a fine conception of the whole may be obtained. The subterranean concussions were felt beyond the confines of Sicily, but if the city of Opito in Calabria be taken as the center, a circle around it, whose radius is 22 miles, would include the space which suffered the greatest calamities. Within this circle, all the towns and villages were almost entirely destroyed. A radius of 72 miles would include the whole region affected. It was a calm, hazy day in February, 1783. At a quarter to one o'clock was felt the first shock, which threw down, in the space of two minutes, the greater part of the houses within the whole space above described. The convulsive motion of the earth is said to have resembled the rolling of the sea, and that in many instances it produced swimming of the head, like seasickness. This rolling of the surface, like the billows of the sea, was like that which would have been produced by the agitation of a vast mass of liquid matter under the ground. In some walls which were shattered, the separate stones were parted from the mortar, so as to leave an exact mold where they had rested as though the stone had been carefully raised from its bed in a perpendicular direction. But in other instances the mortar was ground to powder between the stones, as though they had been made to revolve on each other. It was found that the swelling, or wave-like motions, and those which were called vorticose, or whirling, often produced the most singular and unaccountable effects. Thus, in some streets in the town of Monteleone, Every house was thrown down except one, and in some other streets all but two or three, and these were left uninjured, though differing in no respect from others. In some houses which were wrecked, deep foundations were thrown clear out of the ground, as though upheaved by direct lifting. Sometimes very massive buildings escaped. Sometimes they suffered most. Obelisks and pillars made in sections showed the effects of the vorticose motion. The separate portions were partly turned upon each other, without being thrown down. The number and size of the fissures in the soil is astonishing. In many instances, these fissures were so wide as in an instant to swallow up men, trees, and even houses. And when the earth sunk down again, it closed upon them so entirely as not to leave the least vestige of what had happened, nor were any signs of them ever discovered afterwards. In the vicinity of Opito, the center of these convulsions, Many houses were precipitated into the same great fissure, which immediately closed over them, and in the same neighborhood, four farmhouses, several oil stores, and dwelling houses were so entirely engulfed that not a vestige of them was seen afterwards. In some instances, these chasms did not close. In one district, a ravine formed in this manner a mile long, 100 feet broad and 30 feet deep, remained open, and in another, a similar one remained three-quarters of a mile long. 150 feet wide and 100 feet deep. In another instance, there remained such a chasm, 30 feet wide and 225 feet deep. 
In another place, a gulf 300 feet square was left open. Again, we are told of one 750 feet square. A calcareous mountain, Zephyrio, was rent in twain for half a mile. Similar effects were observed in Sicily, where Messina was almost totally destroyed, and the ruins devoured by the flames. In various places, the ground sunk down and lakes were formed, which being fed by springs, have remained ever since. The convulsions also removed immense masses of the earth from the sides of steep hills into the valleys below, so that, in many instances, oaks, olive orchards, vineyards, and cultivated fields were seen growing at the bottoms of deep hollows, having been removed from the side hills of the vicinity. In one instance, a mass of earth 200 feet thick and 400 feet in diameter, being set in motion by one of the first shocks, traveled four miles into the valley below. The violence of the upward motion of the ground was singularly illustrated by the inversion of heavy bodies lying on the surface, and which can hardly be accounted for, except on the supposition that they were actually thrown to a considerable distance into the air. Thus, in some towns, a considerable portion of the flat paving stones were found with their lower sides uppermost. Mr. Lyle accounts for this effect by supposing that the stones were propelled upwards by the momentum which they had acquired and the adhesion of one end of the mass being greater than the other, a rotary motion had been communicated to them. It is difficult to conceive how a whirling motion so rapid as to produce such an effect could have been communicated to a whole town without producing some consequences still more extraordinary. In many places in the plain of Rosarno, funnel-shaped pits were formed, with crevices radiating in every direction like fractures in a pane of glass. These were partially filled with sand and water. Palestina was so absolutely wrecked that not the least semblance of the plan of the town could be detected. Terranova was precipitated with its 1,400 inhabitants, 325 feet into a deep gorge and turned upside down. Maluquelo, on an opposite hill between two streams, was rent in twain. One half fell into the stream on the right, the other on the left. There was left a ridge so narrow at the top one could not keep his balance on it. Santa Cristena, was hurled from the top of a sandy hill into the valley beneath. Out of 375 towns and villages, 320 were destroyed. 215 lakes and morasses were created by displacements of the ground and blocking of watercourses. The pestilence bred by these vied with the direct power of the earthquake. Some slight disturbance was manifested on the day before the great shock. Prince Cilia, an old man, warned his people to take to their boats and himself set the example. When the first shock came, many of these people were sleeping in their boats near the shore, while the others were on the shore at a little place elevated above the sea. With this convulsion the earth rocked, and suddenly there was precipitated a great mass of rock from Mount Jussi, on the plain where the people had taken refuge, and immediately after the water arose to a great height above its ordinary level, and swept away the sleeping multitude. The wave then instantly retreated, but soon after returned again with increased violence, bringing back many of the people and animals which it had carried away. At the same time, every boat in the vicinity was overwhelmed, or dashed against the beach, and thus destroyed. The prince, who was an aged man, with thirteen hundred of his people, was swept away and perished in the sea. The total loss of life resulting from this earthquake is estimated at eighty thousand. A shock which came on the 4th of March was as violent as the first one. 1,100 shocks were felt in two years. Doubtless, not a few of those who perished died merely from hunger or confinement. 
Quite a number of those rescued after several days were uninjured. If it be true that prosperity shows men in their true colors, the reverse is equally marked. It is hard to believe the tales of barbarous inhumanity of the occasion. Says Dolomieu, as egotism and the instinct of self-preservation crushed all other feeling, no help was brought to the unhappy victims buried beneath the ruins. Yet many of them might have been rescued. When calm was restored, the lower orders, succumbing to the vilest passions of nature, thought of nothing but pillage. Like a certain class of ghouls who follow in the wake of armies to enrich themselves by plundering the slain, men might have been seen scouring the fallen ruins, braving imminent danger, and treading underfoot dying persons who appealed piteously for help in order to go and plunder the houses of the wealthy. They robbed the very injured, who would have paid them handsomely for rescuing them. At Palestina, a person of quality had been buried head downwards beneath the ruins of his house, and when his servant saw what had happened, he actually stole the silver buckles off his shoes while his legs were in the air and made off with them. The unfortunate gentleman managed, however, to rescue himself from his perilous position. For several days, cries of anguish were heard coming from underground. For days afterward, the fearful stench of putrefying corpses filled the atmosphere. Such were the horrors of this memorable occasion. So sudden was the calamity that many of those buried supposed only their houses were overthrown, and wondered why their neighbors were so slow to aid them. Many suffered greatly from thirst, and in consequence hardly felt the pinch of hunger, though entombed several days. One of the most notable of the earthquakes of the last century is the one which overturned Lisbon, November 1st, 1755. In extent of territory affected, it is the greatest of any known, but because it bears the name of the place where it was most violent, it is supposed by many to have been confined to a single district. The morning was magnificent. At 9.35 a.m., there was a loud underground roar, like distant thunder, followed at once by a tremendous shock, which overthrew churches, convents, and many others of the finest buildings of the city. This shock lasted five seconds. There was two minutes' pause, during which thousands of shrieking people rushed about the streets to escape the falling ruins. Then came a second shock, and two minutes later, a third. In five minutes, the Portuguese capital had become a ruin, filled with 50,000 corpses. The churches were filled with people, it being All Saints' Day, and the hour of High Mass. The great cathedrals were but death traps. All apparatus that could be of use in the work of rescue was buried in the wreck. The streets were crowded with sobbing multitudes, calling in vain for friends and kin. At the seashore was the magnificent quay, Quais de Prada. It was built entirely of marble, and just finished at an immense expense, and on it, after the first shock, a vast concourse of people had collected as a place of safety, having left the city to escape the fall of the houses. But it proved the most fatal spot in the vicinity, for at the next shock the earth opened and instantly swallowed up the whole quay with the multitude which had there assembled, and so completely were the whole retained by the closing of the earth that not a single dead body ever rose again to the surface. A great number of small boats and other vessels near the quay, and filled with people as a place of safety, were also precipitated into the yawning vortex, and it is stated that not a single fragment of any of these boats were ever seen afterwards. When the disaster was over, soundings were taken. Six hundred feet of water rolled above the marble quay and its countless victims. St. Ubus was swallowed up by sea waves, 
while rocks fell from its promontory into the sea. Then the sea suddenly retired, leaving the bed of the harbor exposed. A moment later, a gigantic wave, 50 feet in height, rolled in upon the doomed city. Two hours later, fire broke out in the wreck, and driven by high wind, swept the ruins and also the houses left standing. The furious flames raged three days, burning hundreds imprisoned in the wreck. Every element seemed in conspiracy against the city. In addition to threatened famine and pestilence among the survivors, the rabble, as in Calabria, showed a disposition to the indiscriminate plunder. Upon this, the king gave orders immediately for gallows to be placed all round the city, and after about one hundred executions, amongst which were some English sailors, the evils stopped. The king was very prompt and energetic, initiating every practicable system of relief, and having the really needy cared for at the expense of the state. Several lighter shocks were felt in the succeeding two months. At the end of three months, the government began to rebuild the town. In fifteen years it was well restored, and today is one of the handsomest in Europe. The immense area over which this earthquake was felt is very remarkable, for not only was every part of Spain and Portugal convulsed, but the shocks were perceived with greater or less intensity in England, Holland, Italy, Norway, Sweden, Germany, Switzerland, Corsica, the West Indies, at Morocco and Algiers in Africa, and in a part of South America. At Algiers, the shock was so violent as to throw down many buildings, and an oasis with all its population not far from Morocco was swallowed up. Fez and Mesquines were destroyed, with 15,000 people, the town of Setubal, 17 miles from the Tagus, and 22 miles southeast of Lisbon, was almost entirely swallowed up. The shock was almost as severe at Oporto as at Lisbon. The premonitory roar was compared to the rattling of many carriages over a rough road. The loftiest mountains were shaken and many cleft or shattered. Masses of rock tumbled from the crags into the valleys. At Calares, 17 miles from Lisbon, flames and smoke were seen to burst from the Alviras, and also out of the sea. These phenomena continued for some days. A chasm 15 miles long opened in the Pyrenees. Towns were seriously damaged in Switzerland, France, and Italy. Vesuvius, in a state of eruption for a period, suddenly ceased. The shock was also felt by ships far at sea, and in several instances, the concussion was such as to make the people suppose their vessels had struck on a rock. In one instance, it is said that the people on board a vessel off the West Indies were thrown up a foot and a half from the deck. This circumstance may be accounted for by the inelasticity of water, so that a violent and sudden movement of the bottom of the ocean would be communicated to the surface and to the ship through the medium of the fluid, with nearly the same force as though the vessel had been on the ground itself. Quite as remarkable was the immense wave produced. At Cadiz, its height was 60 feet, and the damage in proportion. Rolling to the northward, it inflicted vast injury upon Cornwall, England. At the Canaries and Azores, the waves rose repeatedly to an immense height and at Madeira, the injury was still greater. In less than an hour, the wave had traveled to Leyden. Norway and Sweden felt its presence, even to the recesses of the Gulf of Finland, on the western border of the Atlantic, among the Lesser Antilles, where the tide scarcely exceeds 29 inches. A black wall of water 22 feet high rushed upon the coasts. The steep and rocky islet of Stabia was dashed over by the waves. 
In Martinique, the water rose to the roofs of the houses and then receded from the shore for more than a mile. The unusual commotion stirred up the bituminous sediment of the sea bottom, and at Barbados the waves were in consequence black as ink. There have been numerous earthquakes since in Europe which must pass without mention. One in 1817 completely destroyed Bostitza, a town in Greece not far from the site of ancient Hellas. Another well-remembered one in 1855 desolated the canton of Valais in Switzerland. This country has had numerous shocks, 1,600 or more in the past few centuries, and once or twice, Basel has been almost totally destroyed. Valais itself is a beautiful vale, accessible only by a cleft in a mountain range 8,500 feet deep. Numerous small towns and hamlets are scattered about the vale, and the precipitous slopes around are dotted with shepherds' and hunters' huts. On July 25th, 1855, after an extremely hot morning, the people were astounded by a great earthquake, an abrupt and vertical shock. Then came wave-like motions, throwing everyone prostrate. Houses tumbled in all directions. People were rolled about like logs of wood. Nearly every village in the canton was destroyed. Great landslips and avalanches rushed down from the hills. So tremendous was the shock that the mountaintops could be seen to sway to and fro. Crags and blocks of ice fell into the vales, crushing and grinding. A terrible uproar sounded as though the whole range of the Alps was about to collapse. The terrible shocks were felt at Lyon, at Paris, at Heidelberg, at Milan, at Genoa. Lisbon had no severer shock, and this great convulsion that dandled mountains as though mere puppets and destroyed towns and villages by the score killed one person. It is one of the most remarkable occurrences in European history. Among the more destructive recent shocks in Europe are those of 1881-84. Chia, one of the most beautiful islands of the Grecian archipelago, and the home of a thrifty and enterprising people, was visited by an earthquake on April 3, 1881. The whole city, with its hospitals, schools, libraries, and works of art, was laid in ruins in a few seconds. This convulsion forms a strange contrast to the more violent one just described. Numerous adjacent villages were overthrown, and after the shock was passed, it was found that more than 5,000 persons were killed and 10,000 others more or less injured. After making all possible efforts at restoration, the authorities were compelled to pull down many still tottering walls and scatter disinfectants over the wreck to avoid an epidemic from the thousand corpses left beneath the ruin. The entire adjacent coast of Asia Minor was more or less shaken, and several scores of people were killed in some seaport towns. The shocks continued several days, each being accompanied by a peculiar subterranean roaring. Two years later, ere the town was fairly rebuilt, there was another earthquake, which, however, did more damage in Asia Minor than in Chio. But the most striking example of great damage done by an earthquake in a very small tract is the case of the island of Ischia. This tiny islet, the Imarina of Horus and Virgil, was well known to the Greeks, who at one time endeavored to establish themselves upon it, but were finally driven away by repeated volcanic outbursts. Since the activity of Vesuvius, Ischia has remained quiet, though a dozen extinct craters bear witness to its former fury. Its highest point is 2,772 feet above the sea, while the entire island is but six miles in diameter. It is evidently cast up by an ancient submarine volcano. Situated a few miles from Naples, Ischia has for years been a favorite summer resort for the Italians of the neighboring coast.
a score of little towns and villages dot its shores and hills, and the view of the Gulf of Naples, Baie, and adjacent islands and coasts forms one of the most beautiful landscapes in the world. After its abandonment by the Greek colonists, the islet was quiet for 16 centuries. In 1302, an eruption and earthquake occasioned considerable loss of life and property. After that, though the main peak, Epomeo, has been occasionally muttering and fuming, no serious disturbance occurred for nearly six centuries. The subterranean heat occasions numerous hot springs, the water reaching a temperature of 170 degrees. These baths and the abundance of choice fruits afforded by the island afford additional attractions to visitors, and the 25,000 inhabitants would seem to have an earthly paradise. March 4, 1881, the people were suddenly roused from their slumbering security by two sharp shocks half an hour apart, which overthrew 700 houses in the little town of Casamicciola, killing 126 people and wounding 177 more. The only premonition was that a few minutes before the hot springs suddenly reached the boiling point. Yet this disaster was comparatively insignificant when we consider the one of July 28, 1883. It was the height of the summer season. The little island was thronged with pleasure-seeking visitors. The night was dark and cloudy. The sea was unusually agitated. The small theater at Casamicciola was filled with an animated throng who cared not for the boating storm. The play opened with an earthquake scene. As the clock pointed to 9.32, the Puncinello rushed on the stage shouting, Un terremoto! Un terremoto! Alla mare! Alla mare! An earthquake, an earthquake, to the sea, to the sea. The audience thought it was part of the play, but ere they could applaud the vigorous acting, the lights were out, a thundering sound was heard, and the crashing roof was upon them. The appalling roar was followed by profound silence, as clouds of stifling dust were whirled up by the wind. Then in the darkness were heard the cries of terrified people, seeking one another in the gloom, and groping for the shore as in the days of Pompeii. A visitor who was in the theater said that at the first noise, which resembled the discharge of a heavy battery of artillery, not a cry was uttered, though terror was depicted in every countenance. But when the first shock was followed by several others, a shriek of despair went up from every lip. The lights went out, pieces of timber were falling all about us, and cries of terror were succeeded by shrieks of pain from those who had been injured. It was a trying moment. When the shocks ceased, I crawled, like many others, out of the ruined building in order to reach the shore. The dust was literally blinding. Several times I stumbled over heaps of masonry and rubbish from which heart-rendering groans and shrieks were proceeding. Upon the shore, I encountered many others as frightened as I was, and endeavoring to escape in fear of there being more shocks. Seeing that all remained quiet, we retraced our steps in order to relieve the injured. But it was not until the morning, upon the arrival of the authorities and the troops sent from Naples, that it was possible to take any effective steps for surmounting the difficulties by which we were surrounded. The firemen, assisted by volunteers, then set to work energetically to clear away the rubbish, laying the dead bodies in a row and handing the injured over to the doctors. It was necessary to go to work very carefully so as not to injure those still unhurt and so the work continued very slowly, during which time we felt our heartstrings torn by the piteous appeals for relief. Some people were covered by so much debris that it took hours to reach them, and when we did so, 
Some of them had succumbed to their injuries, while others had gone out of their minds. The dense clouds of dust had choked many of those who were not killed on the spot. Some strange scenes occurred, and there were instances of remarkable coolness. An Italian professor of surgery, who had taken his child to the theater, coolly took out his watch at the first crash, and noting the exact time, sat perfectly still while the surging crowd endeavored to escape. There he sat with his child till morning, when the light enabled him to find his way out of the wreck. The seashore was a weird spectacle. Lighted up by a pile of blazing drift might be seen scores of naked children, and grown persons in their nightclothes, scurrying wildly about. An eyewitness tells of many crazy with fear and grief. All night long the wreck resounded with groans and cries. One woman, whom we heard continually moaning and crying, My children, my children, was found at daybreak on the edge of a shattered terrace, and clad only in chemise. Wondering what he could say by way of consolation, he chanced to observe two little ones playing not far away amid a tottering wreck that threatened at every moment to crush them. They were hers. Further down, a woman's jeweled arm and shoulder protruded from the wreck, while her husband, buried nearly, kept crying, Save her! Never mind about me! As a helping hand was reached to her, a sudden landslip crushed out the remaining life. A young English lady sat playing a funeral march. An Italian count sprang up saying, I cannot stand such music. Just as he cleared the door, the hotel fell in ruins behind him. The young lady was found dead at the piano. For days the work went on, pressed by the energy of the Italian government. All the native police had been killed in the wreck. King Humbert in person visited the scene and had the work pressed as rapidly as possible. There was no more complete wreck of any town than of Lacoameno. Of 1,593 people, but five escaped. At Casamicciola, but one house was left intact. Not a few houses in the former place were swallowed up in fissures. Floria was totally destroyed, yet the largest town on the island, Ischia, with the adjacent villages, was scarcely hurt. And at Naples on the mainland, the news of the catastrophe was a complete surprise. Yet on the half of the islet that was most severely shaken, the earthquake numbered 4,000 victims. A greater contrast to the Great Valais earthquake could hardly be imagined. Still more recent is the catastrophe of southern Spain, one of the loveliest regions of the world. This district has several times been shaken, but notably at the time of the Lisbon earthquake, when so much damage was done by shocks and sea waves at Cadiz, again in 1833, when in the single province of Murcia, more than 4,000 houses were destroyed, with hundreds of the inhabitants. Again, the ground was in a state of constant tremor from November 1855 to March 1856. But more severe than these was the shock of 1884. About the end of November, slight vibrations were perceptible in Spain, Portugal, Italy, and southern France. The shocks did not manifest a special intensity at any especial locality, and no attention was paid to them, as such occurrences are so frequent that they cannot be regarded as indicative of greater shocks to come. For example, there were 4,620 shocks recorded in different portions of the Earth during the years 1850-57, to 57. yet none of these were followed by earthquakes of great severity. So in the case of the November shocks of 1884, no one seemed concerned to know where they originated or if they boded evil. But on Christmas Day, 1884, there came, a little past nine at night, an intense subdued roar like that of a hurricane, and at once the plateau of Andalusia, 
the mountains of Mercia, and the sunny plains of Granada, Jane, and Cordova shook from one end to the other. At Seville, the terrified people rushed into the streets and camped there all night, but this city did not suffer so much as in the shock of 1755. In Granada, the motions followed in rapid succession for several weeks, but though many other buildings were overthrown, the far-famed Alhambra was not injured. 20,000 people camped without the city gates. The shocks were much severest in the mountainous districts. Villages and hamlets in ravines and along mountain slopes were speedily destroyed. The town of Alhama lost 1,320 houses at the first shock. 576 bodies were taken out of the ruins. 280 houses were overthrown by subsequent shocks. Abumelas lost 517 people and 463 houses out of 477. More than 3,000 houses were wrecked throughout Andalusia and Granada. 56 towns and hamlets were greatly damaged, 20 of them entirely destroyed. Parts of mountain slopes slid slowly into the valleys. Deep crevices like those of the Calabrian earthquakes were opened in some localities. One of these is two miles long and of unknown depth. Boiling water burst from fissures in the mountains. The course of the river Gogolas was changed. Portions of the country were upheaved, others depressed. Shocks were felt at sea near the Azores. Several thousands were killed and wounded, and the survivors suffered much from cold and hunger. The young King Alfonso took active part in the work of relief, but so numerous were the dead that many of them had to be buried in heaps or covered with quicklime. There was not time to bury all properly. Such are details of the more prominent European earthquakes. There have been others of almost equal importance, but three years ago a severe earthquake killed 2,000 or more in the Italian Riviera, but the cases given well illustrate the destruction wrought in Europe and other regions claim attention. End of chapter 24 Do you like the TV series Tales from the Crypt? Are you interested in full episode and movie reviews from Tales from the Crypt? This podcast is for you. The Good Evening Kitties podcast, where I, Melissa, your ghostess with the mostess, recap every episode with special guests and bonus horror movie reviews. The Good Evening Kitties podcast can be found on most podcast platforms. Check it out today.